What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Hi, and welcome back to Get Off My World. <laughs> We're a Doctor Who podcast composed of people of a certain age who love the classic series and endure the new series, too. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And tonight we're joined by special guest and frequent co-host... Ariel Leaf. Yay, Ariel! Yay! And because we always like to start things out on a high note, we're going to start this podcast with a round we call Temporal Grace, where we all share something we love about the universe of Doctor Who. As our guest, Ariel, would you like to start today? Sure, I'd be happy to start. Uh, Watching uh, some of the episodes that we have watched for uh, tonight's podcast and... I uh, found myself really loving the bad special effects of Doctor Who. (laughs) And the reason that I love the bad special effects of Doctor Who is they're just unapologetically bad special effects. They don't really attempt to be good special effects. I don't think in any universe did the people creating the special effects think, oh, I'm totally going to get them with this one. (laughs) But it doesn't doesn't matter. If you love Doctor Who, you accept the special effects. So Yeah, our randomizer episode today will have many occasions to talk about those special effects. Indeed it will. (laughs) Calvin, what about you? Well, this isn't super duper new at this point, but I am curious about the um, Fifth Doctor audio adventure Time in Office. I heard it. It's really good. I'm curious about it. It's The premise is basically, okay, the Fifth Doctor becomes president. I can't remember what ep- episode is it. Is it um, Ark of Infinity? President of Gallifrey? Yeah, where he becomes... Yes, he's president. President, and he goes like, oh, okay, uh, well, you have full deputy powers until I get back to the Citadel. And then he just takes off. Oh, that's the Five Doctors, yes. Oh, it's the Five Doctors? Okay. One but of those 80s. One of those 80s. Some fifth Doctor story. I think it was on Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> and basically the Time Lords grab him and say, no, you're president now. You're going to actually administer... Gallifrey and and our stuff. So it's the doctor forced to be president for like a few years. Tegan's in it and yeah. Leela's in it. Just to hit Tegan and Leela interact is great fun. Oh, now I want to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, now I want to be part of that. Well, Jones. I also have a big finish, mm-hmm. uh, happy thing, um, and I've been really into big finish lately. I'm a big audio fan, and I've been listening to the Ravenous box sets, which are the newest Eighth Doctor ones, and. They're up to three box sets, and I've enjoyed them thoroughly, but the fourth box set that comes out in October, they have just recently announced, and it's going to feature Paul McGann versus four masters. What? They have the Jeffrey Bieber's master, they have Michelle Gomez master, they have Derek Jacoby master, and for the first time since the TV movie, they have... Bruce Master, Eric Roberts? <laughs> Eric Roberts Master. All four of them are going to be doing. Battle. How'd they get him? <laughs> 
well, he was just sleeping outside the studio. <laughs> it just woke him up. <laughs> My talking cat residuals ran out. I guess I better do this Doctor Who thing. But I think that's going to be so much fun, just the amount of scenery chewing. Foley for the scenery say, chewing is going to be unapologetic. Yes. So I am just giddy with anticipation for that. Also, and I just now tried to Google it to get all my facts straight for it, and I uh, Googled Ravenous 4, and the two top search were Ravenous 4 Doctor Who and Ravenous 4 Weeks Pregnancy. <laughs> so, <laughs> careful how you Google I was this. hoping he was also going to bring up one of my but, favorite yeah, really also, kitschy horror yeah. movies, which yeah, is yeah. called Ravenous. With the um, Wendigo. Yes, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, they great. also uh, have something about Eric Roberts in Ravenous 4 Week Pregnancy. I don't know why. <laughs> it's, it's weird. We'll draw a veil over that. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Pat? Well, my temporal grace for today uh, is a suggestion from Get Off My World super fan Dr. Doug Shaw, uh, <laughs> who, uh, hi, Doug. Uh, thank you for the link. He sent a link a uh, short while ago of a YouTube compilation of Doctor Who actors in television commercials from the 1980s through the 1990s. And this is including people like Mary Tam and Fraser Hines doing an ad for Ocean Finance, Katie Manning doing one for Singapore Airlines, that sort of thing. And I'm going to link to this in the show notes from our, our webpage. I encourage everybody to take a look at it because it's a hoot. Uh, and what's notable about it is that all of the ads, as far as I can tell, are from after when those actors appeared on Doctor Who, because, as we all know, appearing on classic Doctor Who is not exactly a path to the life of Riley, right? <laughs> but uh, a few of them do touch on the fact that the actors are kind of known from the show. Ian Martyr wears a British naval uniform in his uh, commercial, which might be a coincidence, but there's definitely a science fiction element in Peter Davison's ad for the saucepans. <laughs> and various I remember, I've, I've seen the Peter Davison saucepan ad. It's very... It's a lot of fun, and I want to thank you, Doug, for sending this in, because it's it's a real treat, and I hope our viewers will get something out of it, too. Moving into round two, this is our special topics, Dalek. And this is our first question, I think, from one of our regular listeners. This is from David DeYoung. Thank you, David, for sending in this question, because it's a good one. Uh, he writes to us, I bet you get a lot of fan mail and suggestions... <laughs> we love you for thinking that, David. Oh, we really oh, do. My ribs, my ribs. Oh, <laughs> a lot of uh, But can I? Uh, excuse me. But can I propose you answer a question for me in a subsequent episode? Yes, you can. Uh, I've been a huge Doctor Who fan since the 1970s, and I have lots of Doctor Who paraphernalia: pajamas, coffee mug, water bottle, robe, etc. Now I have a six-year-old daughter. Too much information. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting actually for the object that might be too information. He also has a six-year-old daughter okay. as part of the paraphernalia. That's what I meant. Yeah. Now I have a six-year-old daughter who up until this past year said she did not like Doctor Who, in her words, because Doctor Who is a boy. But now that Doctor Who is a woman, she has taken an interest, and that's fantastic, of course. I'm getting her a Jodie Whittaker doll for Christmas. Uh, this question's been sitting around for a little while. Uh, and her own TARDIS robe, but I cannot think of any episodes from the new series that would be okay to watch with a child that young. And I'm just now reading that word new there. Any episodes from the new series that would be okay to watch with a child uh, that young? So we're not going to actually answer your question, David. We're going to answer the question, classic series episodes that would be good to watch with your six-year-old, probably 22-year-old daughter now. Right. <laughs> well, I think we on the fly can add some new series sure. episodes as well. Sure. I think it would be good to start her on the classic series. You think? In chronological order. 
<laughs> because if we run out of time, oops. Yes. Yes, the pilot episode of An Unearthly Child is clearly the ideal place to start. Um, well, I mean, as far as new series stuff goes, uh, a lot of people in the past have suggested The Eleventh Hour as being a good episode to start with. It's got a young uh, Amy Pond there as a sort of young person identification figure. It's got a new doctor. There isn't a lot of continuity that you need to be aware of, and Matt Smith establishes himself pretty quickly as, you know, in one of the many, 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 many speeches from the new series, like, I'm the Doctor and I protect the Earth. So at least the, the concepts are established pretty quickly, and it's a pretty fun episode, as I remember. Are we going to cut directly from that to her kissing him? Because then I would vomit. <laughs> Does she kiss him in the same episode? Is that It's, it's when he comes back, and you know. he's in her bedroom, and she kisses him. It's the same episode, isn't it? That just links to my whole problem with hero worship, age gaps, and love and yes, Doctor Who. So the, I won't go there because the, we've heard me talk about all that way too much. Uniform, but yes, really. she's in the police. You should uniform. really email another podcast, David. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's, but why, I was thinking that's why we want to talk about these sorts true. of questions. That's like true. What, I think underlying all this uh, is the really interesting question of what do we think would be good for children? For what, a child. In what ways can Doctor Who yeah. uh, fit into a child's mind and consciousness and development? And some people at this table actually have. Children. Yes, we do. Yes. I mean, I guess yep. th- th- that's my inherent problem with that episode. Um, I would rather, if we're choosing to introduce a child to a companion, have it be one that doesn't already have this sort of hero worship, waiting for her savior to come along complex. I would rather it was somebody who was already sort of fiercely independent on their own as a human that meets the doctor and, and decides to be his companion. You know, well, I would say Bill Potts. Anything with Bill Potts would be a great example of that. I think she's a wonderful example of the kind of companion that exists side by side with the Doctor instead of uh, needing or worshipping or being in love with or any of those things. And I think some of the lighter episodes kids connect to because I know, A, when I was not really young, but younger viewer, I liked the the funny doctors. Um, those appealed to me. So I think uh, along the lines that uh, Ariel's talking about with companion relationships, uh, the 10th Doctor and Donna, mm-hmm. uh, some of those are very Witty, fun. Something funny. like that. The first one with her with the adipose. Uh, yeah, the actually, the adipose was the next one. I was, was going to bring up the adipose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but Donna's they murder very people. appealing. Yeah, but yeah, that's but why kids like this. There's though, murder right? in every it's, doctor. It's like Grimm's fairy tales. Kids love murder. They do. <laughs> but I, and I'd rather pick the adipose over the uh, mannequins in the store next to you are going to come to life yeah. and start murdering. Because that's yeah. like childhood nightmare fodder for sure. It's, yeah. It's better those things that are just obviously Ridiculous. not real. Like yeah. squishy yeah. little kind of bad Yeah, I was trying to think of something that was... You know, sort of monstery oriented, but the monsters are sort of cute in a way. Like maybe Zygons would be a little too creepy looking or whatever, but. I think the classic terror of the Zygons is still terrifying and all these years later, so I certainly wouldn't recommend that. My son, when he was little, and it was before the new series, he really identified with the icons of the show. So he was obsessed with the TARDIS. So any episode where something weird happened with the TARDIS, Legopolis, where it shrank, or in the new series Peter Capaldi episode where it got really small and she carried it around in her handbag, <laughs> or in Happiness Patrol when it got painted pink, mm-hmm. he was obsessed with the fact that there was a pink TARDIS. Just anything out of the <laughs> norm for kids interests them once they understand what is what it should be, and then here's a version where it's not. Sure. And thinking of the classic series, I think 
some of it depends on what you mean by kids, too, like whether you're talking five or six-year-olds or whether you're talking eight or nine-year-olds. You know, I'm definitely speaking from a bias because I came to Doctor Who at a certain age with a certain doctor on that. Surprise, that's Sylvester McCoy. But I think what, for me, is really appealing, especially if it's a young girl, about showing uh, Ace and Sylvester as, as a good starting point, and if they're a little bit older, is there's a, a lot of room for Ace to have young angst and still be strong. Um, she she goes through a lot of the struggles about whether or not she loves her parents, what kind of relationship she wants to have with the doctor. She has very, very emotional outbursts, but none of them cast her as being weak in any way. And she still has a, a lot of um, independence. And uh, I, I think that both you see a good relationship between a teacher-mentor and you see uh, someone actually just mm-hmm. behaving like a teenager. Mm-hmm. And d- definitely the reason I kept watching Doctor Who is because I wanted to own a baseball bat and blow things up. And, um, <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the iconography of the series and a little bit about modes of identifying with the characters and maybe kind of like moral lessons or personality creation lessons. What about the, the show itself as a fiction, as like a narrative? Are there things that would really grasp... Like, I'm thinking, I don't have kids, but um, I started watching the show when I was about eight years old, uh, and I think I was eight or nine, and the first one I saw, as I've talked about in this podcast, is The Ark in Space, and that was compelling immediately to me because of the weirdness of it, uh, because I hadn't seen anything like it on television before, and that's not going to be the case with most kids these days, because science fiction is everywhere, but Tom Baker's weird, eccentric personality was super interesting and I hadn't seen it and the relationship between the characters and the strange sterile environment and the easily graspable eight-year-old plot of the alien wasp things coming in and laying eggs in the last remaining humans was extremely engaging. And it wasn't too long after that that I read my first Doctor Who novel, which would have been uh, Day of the Daleks by Terrence Dix. And I was confused because I didn't realize that there were other doctors and why was this guy not described like Tom Baker. But I don't know that Day of the Daleks particularly would be a good one (laughs) to introduce to a six-year-old girl, but it does have that kind of adventure quality. It's a time travel. It's the Terminator. It's got ape things. It's got Daleks, and it's got unit, and it kind of engages with the core concepts of the show Mm -hmm. in a very sort of action movie-ish way. Well, and I kind of agree. Well, I definitely agree with Ariel as far as the... Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred episodes being a good place for kids to start. It splits a nice difference between the new episodes and the old episodes because I had a friend of mine who claimed that the beginning of the Chris Reckleston episodes are the best place to start because that's where he started with his daughter mm-hmm. because he claimed that the older episodes it was too hard for the kids to get in the special effects and all that. And, you know, that may or may not be true, but I think the nice thing about the Sylvester McCoy era is it is recent enough where the effects, they're, they're kind of hokey. But there's, it's still very colorful, it's still very modern looking, and the two of them have that great dynamic that I think is really easily approachable for kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, the greatest show in the galaxy has evil clowns. Kids love evil clowns. Yeah. <laughs> and robots. And-, well, and I think sometimes we keep talking about like safer episodes in a weird way like mm-hmm. this one's not going to be as scary maybe this is mm-hmm. a good place to start him but I almost for some reason thought about like Trial of the Time Lord and, and the Valyard versus the Doctor and how like huge that seems he's going to become this awful person can he save himself from being you know and that's those are high stakes like I almost want to go the other way and be like let's give them the highest stakes almost scariest episode we can because mm. that actually might be like like you said evil clowns like yeah. you give them a, a big villain kids want to be a little Afraid. So yeah. I, I was reading the other day, apparently there was a kind of a brouhaha in England where um, 
some kid's movie about like a talking pig or something like that uh, accidentally had a trailer for a slasher movie run in front of it, <laughs> and it became like a big, uh, a big oh my god, who, who think of the children sort of thing. But the novelist Kim Newman wrote a little editorial uh, about this particular event, and of course Kim written about how horror movies his entire life and most of his novels have scary elements and he was talking about his own childhood about well I saw th- these things at an extremely young age and it just engaged me on such a fundamental level that I was sort of chasing it ever since because you would see trailers for these horror movies and the movies themselves would never be anywhere nearly as frightening as the things that you could imagine from seeing <laughs> the trailers and so he's like well I wouldn't endorse necessarily <laughs> showing terribly frightening things to very young children I don't think it's like a permanent and scarring kind of thing. And so something like uh, Terror of the Zygons or, yeah, I don't know, also, Horror at Fang Rock or something would be... Um, it's also funny that Doctor Who is a kid's show in Britain, but we as Americans have taken in Doctor Who mostly like in our college years or whatever, on PBS or whatever, so it's this sort of adult program for us, but the, the Brits are all letting their kids hide behind the couch and watch it. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning of the series. Well, because it was, it was a family program, too. So, like, you, it would be assumed that your family was relatively close by. It wasn't showing at 12.30 at night. It was showing at 5.30 in the afternoon, or you're just about to have dinner, or if you just had dinner or something. And, and, and we tended to see it at, like, 12.30 at night. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we would also yeah. see the entire serial, whereas they would get it in a half hour. I mean, like, I just spent the weekend watching seven episodes straight of She-Ra with my kids, and that is... Nothing now, and so the the other counter argument yeah, about the older ones, and things yeah, like that, it's like oh, the older matter. ones are too long. It's like no, you you just do that with the normal ones now, and they're all set up like half hour episodes, anyways. Mm-hmm. They're just running all together the way we watch them now. When they were rerunning, when I was a kid, they were like mm-hmm. at noon or one or whatever, because I'd go over to my dad's house for the weekend, and we would sit down and watch Doctor Who together. And I was really glad that they were showing it at a time that. It could be introduced to kids, and it wasn't 12.30 at night anymore. Well, I think when Kelvin and I were introduced to it, we they were probably at 4 in the afternoon or something like that. I was There was a very brief yeah. window when it was like it was week, Weekdays yeah. in half-hour installments on PBS. Yeah. Like Ariel was saying, it depends on the age of the kid, because yeah. if you're talking 11, 12, I, that's when I discovered it, and it was on at 10.30 at night, and that was part of the appeal. My parents were in bed and it was that, that time when I was moving into my own autonomy and I got to stay up late on mm-hmm. the weekend, Friday and Saturday and watch Doctor Who. And mm-hmm. I think that was initially half the appeal. It was up past my parents' bedtime. <laughs> so we have a few more minutes in this episode. How about other ideas for uh, classical or new series for David's six-year-old daughter to watch? I'm going to suggest Carnival of Monsters. Yay, yeah, I agree. We haven't, we haven't talked about it on the show yet, but it's solidly written. It's uh, Robert Holmes. It's got a strong central concept. It's got that small people running around inside miniaturized thing thing. Yeah. Thing, thing, <laughs> that uh, can really engage a young person's and imagination. And are a great use of puppetry. Yes. Yeah. They're engaging and they're kind of frightening without being, I think, horrifying. Mm-hmm. Like, you're never going to mistake them for a real threat as a kid. Yeah. Another thing that appealed to me when I was young and my son is the scope and timeline of the show. Is um, the connections through... 50 plus years of history so you might do something like a double feature where you do something like the invisible enemy because I think canine for a really little kid is Mm, really appealing and then put your issues with romance and companions aside for a second depending on how young the kid is it might go over their head you could then show them something like canine with the 10th doctor just to show that sort of 
line throughout it. Little kids find it appealing to find all the connections themselves. It's yeah. the, the Where's Waldo approach to Doctor Who. Well, it's like all the River Song episodes. If you mm-hmm. could just watch all of those in a row to see how that storyline arcs or the silence. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a, a weird one to bring up, but for some reason I keep thinking of uh, Nightmare of Eden. Oh, sure. <laughs> no, I think that whole era Scare of those Baker kids off great. drugs early. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, that wasn't what I was thinking of, but I was thinking of the, uh, the mandrills. Yeah. What they're you know, they're mm-hmm. particularly... Appealing to a kid, kind of a monster. I think there's actually they're just kind of they're very lumbery and that has big heads. a bad reputation <laughs> in fandom, but it's got a lot of appealing things to me. And I remember yeah. as a kid enjoying it because it, it also has that strange science fictional concept of there's the little pocket dimensions, yeah. the zoo that's really like little pocket dimensions where they keep the different animals and they can go into mm-hmm. one or another. And there's some very good cinematography in the jungle sets that they do there. So I think a kid with a visual imagination might appreciate the the contrast between yeah, the, the I, ship and the jungle. Yeah, I was thinking visual stuff. I think that would grab kids more than weighty philosophical issues. Of, <laughs> you sure? Of of the abuse of power or like ghost light maybe? <laughs> Marco Polo? Marco. <laughs> you think Marco Polo would appeal? <laughs> I would have a hard time picturing any first doctor story being a good one to start a kid out on. Oh, that's a question, right? Would there be any? Edge of Destruction, maybe? I don't know. I feel like if they've seen any TV at all, the effects of the first couple are just going to... And the pace. Yeah. They might like the crankiness of William Hartnell, though. Yeah. They might Especially like when he's being super cranky with all the companions. And I think Drowden is an appealing character, too, for kids. Mm-hmm. Honestly, some of the animated episodes might be a good way to hook a kid, too, because they're used to watching animated. Mm-hmm. Macra Terror! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Animated Macrotera is going to be sweet, but let's not digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one last Probably. thing. Uh, I, Josh, years ago, I'm surprised you didn't bring it up right now, that uh, years ago you said that Aaron, I think it was Aaron, it might have mm-hmm. been Miriam, really, really liked the Peter Cushing first Dalek movie. Oh, he did, yes, because it was just so big and bright, and again, he was trying to figure out where and how it fit with the rest of Doctor Who. Again, it comes to like recognizing the icons and trying to put it into some sort of continuity or world, and he was obsessed with it. And the story is really childish. When you yep. boil it down, with you take out the extraneous parts mm-hmm. that the Hartnell story had, it's really very simple for a kid to understand. But compared to Doctor Who, it's pretty fast-paced. Yes. Candy-colored Daleks. <laughs> So thank you, David. This is a terrific question. It's probably something we could have talked about for a lot longer, but we have to move on because when we were exchanging emails about this question to try to generate ideas, we all came up with a couple of Doctor Who stories that we thought might be good for kids. And then of the ones that we haven't talked about on this podcast, we put them into the randomizer and we spun them up. And the one that came out was one of Ariel's suggestions... Time in the Ronnie, and yes. it's not my fault. <laughs> so it literally for, is your fault. No, because I made one suggestion, and then Pat said to me, Ariel, you need to make another suggestion. And I said, do I have to? Fine. Here it, you go. It, it's like that thing of, like, submitting. No, you're right. I didn't. You know, submitting design concepts to a client. And, and then you, they pick the one you hate. And you, they pick the one you hate. <laughs> so you're like, I just had to throw some filler in there. Oh, crap. So but that's what it's going to be for round three of Get Off My World, the random. Sylvester McCoy's debut episode, Time and the Ronnie. But we're going to be talking about this through the lens of David's question. Is this something that would be suitable for kids? If so, why? If not, why not? 
I definitely think it was. I actually really appreciated rewatching this with the idea of a very young child viewing it with me. And for one thing to kick us off is the direction fails Sylvester McCoy quite a lot in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, his physical comedy is really appealing, and I think a kid would find it appealing, and he's really good at it. Um, they just don't know how to direct for it. They set him up really poorly from an adult point of view, but I think he's very charming and warm I think in general his friendly. personality comes through right away in this, yeah. you know, with his quotes that aren't quite right or you know his his well i you know i'm gonna speak from the kids point of view as somebody who watched this as a child and hearing something like out of the frying pan into the mire i'd be like ha ha he got that wrong and it would endure him to me like somehow it it made this you know larger than life figure like i like I that can, you said you know it would Endure you to, instead of endear you. Just <laughs> exactly the very, very funny. But those are the things. More when, when I but. go back and I, I think through old episodes, I can't always remember the plot. But like after I wrote that one down, I was like, "What's another one I remember?" And out of nowhere, I pulled up "Time and Tide Melt the Snowman," or you know, like uh, mm-hmm. "Sleep is for Tortoises." Like these are the uh, these every are the, dogma has its day. Yeah, I mean, these are <laughs> this. This was part of his sort of general ridiculousness. I guess there's so many of them that even a young child could be expected to know some of the original phrases sure. and be, and get some humor out of the malapropisms. Mm. But I think in general, this episode actually does set up who Sylvester McCoy is going to be. He's fast. He moves. He clicks at a pace that I don't think a lot of the other doctors other than Tom Baker did. He's so young uh, looking in he's, that. He's got a manic energy to him that yep. I think could draw kids in right away. He's a live performer, and you feel that energy. I think mainly uh, from an adult point of view, we all know this: the script is not great, the direction is not great. <laughs> There's a lot of things that aren't great about it, but yeah, that level of energy is really appealing. And I do think some of the effects at the time, I was pretty blown away by the bubble effect. I, the bubble I, effect. I agree. I've got a note to that effect. Aren't I like that. But the problem the is they spent globe, yeah. all their money on it. And then there are the <laughs> other effects, like the really, just the sparks. We just have lots of random sparks yeah. happening in this thing to, for everything. The pre-credit sequence is pretty dire with the early computer-generated blast hitting the TARDIS mm-hmm. there. It's, it doesn't and inspire it hope. dragged down by a rainbow. Weird rainbow TARDIS arrival is one of my notes, yes, yes. But I do think that bubble effect would be really appealing to a young kid. Yeah. And I think that the evil little bugs in the um, pleasure room or whatever were passable enough to be really scary for a kid, too. To think that, like, the light in your ceiling yeah. could suddenly kill you, like... It was really funny because it's such a cheap effect and they could still only afford like three Three insects to terrorize that whole um, pleasure dome, which is really just a lazy dome where they just sort of (laughs) center of I had so many questions on this episode that were not answered for me. Like, did the pleasure dome exist before the Ronnie showed up? Are the bats from that planet? Like there were things. Yeah. And granted, for some reason, I could only find part one through three on Daily Motion, so I did not have the end section. So some of these things might have been answered in the last the, section. The, that second question not. is: the tetraps do come from another planet because okay. they're taking her back there, presumably to at eat her end, at the right. end. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think kids, little kids, would love the tetraps. They are cuddly. <laughs> Super snuggly. Yes, they are. And have bizarre tongues. I, I greatly dislike the tetraps, but yeah, no, I, if I was a kid, I think I would. So, was, I, yeah. now I'm curious from an adult point of view, 
it's weird what that fine line is where what bad special effect we accept. <laughs> and what we're like, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and maybe it's the script that earns it. We will forgive a lava monster in a cave of Androzani, right? Sure. But, yeah. uh, the script did not I've allow never us. Forgiven him. <laughs> we need to talk. That's a whole nother round we're going to do. <laughs> Pat forgives the lava monster. <laughs> <laughs> the encountered room. This just never worked for us. The way, you know, and, and not, trust me to get all political on all this stuff, too, but right, oh. there's always political messages within Doctor Who, and they're usually schizophrenic, frankly, because they're created by a ton of different types of people at different times. But there is a weird kind of queasily right-wing element to this one, particularly in Arcuna. The, I don't even remember what the name of the race is mm-hmm. that's on the planet. Like but he's, yeah, yeah, but, but anyway, he comes into the, the center of leisure and just sneers at all the people living for luxury and, and apparently like playing board games and stuff like that. Or whatever, <laughs> Sitting on swings. How dare they? And then the, the doctor literally gives him the like, here's a potion to stop the killer wasps so they don't start murdering all your people. And he's like, no, screw that. We should have danger. Because I'm like, that's really weird. That's, you know, um, that's like tough love kind of 1950s Eisenhower level I just stuff. want to share that in my notes, I've, I've started to try to predict a few things. And I said, spoon-fed Lacursians become indolent pleasure seekers because they don't have to work for what they're given. Pat will read this as conservative and trigger his political ire. Those are my exact notes and predictions. We've been doing this for too long. I think, I think one thing that's good for kids to look at in this episode if they're a little bit older is the, do you go along with something so your people won't get hurt? Um, and or, or do you resist? That's a big thing that comes up in this. Well, they keep uh, using the, the term collaborator, which yeah. is pretty mm-hmm. strong. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and what kind of, is it possible yeah. that she could never have done any of this without him? Or, or could, you know, and so I think that's a really big lesson for kids. But in, instead of digging into that, they save their time to have a long, awkward wrestling scene with the Doctor and Mel. <laughs> True, but like you find out that his daughter gets killed oh, because yeah. he mm-hmm. went with it. And... and that is the thing about Doctor Who, often in some of the hokiest, worst ones, they're always flailing at some bigger idea. <laughs> Speaking of worst ones, this was apparently ranked the third worst story by Doctor Who magazine mm-hmm. behind Fear Her and the Twin Dilemma. Oh, Fear Her. So the new series they're ranking in there, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we'll put a pin in that and, and rank our least favorite ones <laughs> at some point in the future. But let's talk about Mel here. Um, you mean the one who is yelling, always yelling. Well, she's yelling and screaming. She she flips Sylvester McCoy the first time she lays eyes on him, though, which is kind yeah, of it's like, really you know, a schizophrenic on portrayal. Yeah. I actually put down in this notes, maybe she's stronger than I remember her being because mm-hmm. she actually takes a lot of independent action in she's this She's very assertive. It's just yeah. that she screams at the drop yeah, of yeah. a hat. The, the the big defining trait for Mel has always been loudest screamer in Doctor Who history. And that's like literally all I can ever remember about her. That and big hair and weird puffy pink tops. <laughs> but but so yeah. you, you wouldn't be able to tell her and the Ronnie apart if they were in front of you right now. <laughs> I, I have to point out that the, by far the best thing in this story is Kate O'Mara. Yeah. Especially Kate O'Mara doing a Bonnie Langford impression, which is insane. <laughs> But it actually worked. It I worked. think her accent's pretty good. It's really good. Uh, and um, it's just short of 
cruel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. A little more and it would be a little ouch. She had so little to work with. There had only been one Bonnie Langford story before this point, Terror of the Vervoids. Kendra watched that and was like, yep, I can do that. <laughs> or maybe she had this long-standing grudge and had just been waiting, had been honing this for a decade. <laughs> but I have to say, like, you know, one of, an overall thing that I love in Doctor Who are the dark-haired female villains. Or even just strong, dark-haired women. Like, I thought about another character I loved as a kid is I really loved Romana. And she's no exception. She, she's uh, right up there with the master in guilty, enjoyable, scenery-chewing, oh, yeah. acting with no shame, none whatsoever. And she, she's a glory to behold, and she knows it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there's this not really much difference between the actor and the character of the Ronnie, you feel like. No. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about the Ronnie a little bit? Because yeah. this is the first time, I think, that the Ronnie has ever been discussed on our yep. program. That is true. Yeah. She casts a kind of outsized shadow for, and she's only in two classic series episodes, and mm-hmm. she's name-checked every now and then, and she's got some audios, I, I think, mm-hmm. but, uh, like, everybody remembers who she is, uh, but she's only in a couple of stories, well, so... she's a rare female villain. She's a female villain. She's and time a do- lord. another time and lord. Uh, sidebar, by the way, there must have been a really strange class in the academy because it's like the master, Ronnie, the doctor, Drax. Like, what happened? Like, what, what were they drinking? I don't know. It's like, but, all, all the people who decided not to use a name yeah. were in this class. You know, it's funny, and you, you want to say that that's ridiculous, but like the class and the one above me that I graduated from theater in college are all now in this town doing union work. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what happened to the people two years before us or the two years after uh-huh. us. They don't seem to exist, yep. but it's like all of us for well, some It's like reason. those pre-war British writers or whatever, like, oh, Cyril Connolly and George Orwell were at Eton together, and uh, you know, a very tiny little group. I think that's kind of what the model is here. Like, yeah. we were all in these boarding schools yeah. together, and we all came out and became famous in our different ways. But the, the name The Ronnie is so weird. It's like Pip and Jane Baker were just searching their brains for some equivalent of like the master or you know I can do the queen or the princess all these things yeah it's like it's like a Hindu it's the female equivalent of Raja it mm-hmm. means queen in Hindi mm-hmm. uh, it's very strange there's nothing discernibly Indian about the Rani's character why would there be well, you why know, would there be? Why yeah. would there be? She does actually have her nostril pierced, and her jacket is maybe vaguely Indian in some way, and that is maybe a costuming choice just to kind of identify her name. But it's it's very arbitrary, uh, a little bit offensive. Kate Amara is not at all Indian, as if it needs remarking. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, oh come on! All there's all those ginger Indians. <laughs> I mean, I think it's mild as far as the sort of representation goes, but uh, it's just strange. It's just kind of where, where did it come from? Why why the Ronnie of all things? You do not want to enter the labyrinth that is the minds of Pip and Jane, Jane Baker. <laughs> yeah, you really do. You may never come out. I really wish that there was a rumor going around when Russell Davies was in charge of the show that he was going to bring the Ronnie back and it was going to be... I actually really was hoping... And it was going to be Joan yeah. Collins. Yes. <laughs> that would have been great. I'd have been all over that. To my camp hard would just explode with joy. Yeah, that was... I mean, that that is the perfect classic series for character for Russell T. Davies to write. Yeah, yeah for so like the first three seasons, yeah. I kind of had my fingers crossed that she was going to come yeah. back. I thought, oh, at some point, somebody's going to open that gold mine and, like, you know, but make they, all the they old They leaned way into, like, the all the Time Lords are gone thing. Right, yeah, right. So. Yeah, they, he did eventually bring the Master back, but, yeah. Still could happen, though. 
<laughs> we live in hope. Well, you know, I'd love to see, like, the Ronnie versus a now female doctor. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see the two women square off. Or the, the Ronnie <laughs> regenerates as a dude. <laughs> we got yeah. enough dudes. Yeah, we got He'd enough. He'd be the Raja yeah. then. Yeah. So. <laughs> they sort of filled that role with Missy, I suppose. Ooh, um. Because you only need one woman after all. Well, they tried to differentiate the Ronnie's True. character because she's not like the master. She's not a psychopath. Well, she is a psychopath, but she's not out for universal domination or whatever. She's an unethical scientist, is essentially. Yeah, she's a Joseph Mengele. Yeah. From that aspect, it's a really interesting character and a take on Time Lords and a a discussion of morality that Doctor Who doesn't usually go down. It's Mm -hmm. usually pretty pro-science, so it's really interesting to have it critique the dangers of science without ethics, which I think could make an interesting episode today. Yeah? I like, by the way, how this episode defines intelligence. It's Earth people, scientific geniuses, and that equates to sheer computational power in a literal giant brain. Like, that's what intelligence is. It gets bigger. I remember watching this episode. Uh, it was one of the first times that I knew something that was coming. I was like, oh, no, don't link the doctor's brain up for that. Like, that's not going to help you. That's not going to help you at all. You're just going to have problems. You might as well just pour wine into the brain vat, right? (laughs) (laughs) But back to the kid thing, this has got just so many ridiculous over-the-top things for a little kid. You've got a giant pulsating brain prop. You've got cuddly (laughs) bat creatures that hang upside down that are also a little scary. You've got a physical comedy doctor. Tomorrow camping it up. Yeah. And, and, and the glitter are kind of cool looking. And it's strange that there are like a handful of people involved in this production that you can tell put a little extra work into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then well, like, about example, three-fourths of they it. they run their own way. Exactly. Like someone you know? thought about that and like gave a little detail. Someone in the prop department went out of the way to build a non-human skeleton for them that had this ridge. Mm-hmm. And the little on tail it. on it. Yeah. 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 And there's a, a really nice edit in the otherwise really sloppy direction when they're diffusing the bubble trap mm-hmm. and it cuts to the doctor's experiment exploding and you mm-hmm. kind of jump for a second. So here and there. Mm-hmm. I have someone... to ask you, though, as somebody who loves pratfalls, do the bad pratfalls in this episode not make you insane? There's like three this, of them and they're terrible. Do we have 15 minutes? Oh. No. <laughs> I will keep this very short, but that's what I mean down to direction. Directing. I think physical yeah. comedy is a live art or else a carefully directed art on film oh. and you need to set those up correctly. I think... They aren't bad pratfalls. They're just poorly shot. shot and edited because the timing is all off. I don't know There's what they're falling over dead ever. dead time after it. Well, just, just like, like, you know, the doctor wraps his scarf around the Ronnie and kind of lightly pushes her. And she's like, ah, I'm totally incapacitated. <laughs> yeah. And that's... Some of that of is typical for Doctor her, Who. but like, there's like three falls right in front of her, like a uh, little table. Then they're all the same fall. First mm-hmm. off, which drives me crazy. They're all identical falls, and they're all so bad. It does bother me, but I feel like somebody failed Sylvester McCoy. Not that Sylvester McCoy failed oh, at his physical comedy, yeah. but I'm a big defender of physical comedy. But yes. the spoons. He plays some mean spoons. And what and kind of advanced twice. technology has spoons in it just well, ready to go? What advanced what? technology advanced can you use an go. abacus to do the math <laughs> yes. for? Like, that moment popped up and I was like, what? I, there's a lot to enjoy about Time and the Ronnie. I mean, 
it's egregious. It's it's <laughs> it's awful. Let's just it's, all take a moment to say it's, it's terrible. Fun. Let's take a step it's back. Yeah, that's where I'm going fun. with this. That's where I'm going yeah. with this. I find this episode super childish and dumb, but it doesn't anger me the way that some like yeah. really bad stuff does. And I have to say that in a week where I watched Avengers Endgame and the latest episode of Game of Thrones and listened to the War Master audios that we're going to be talking about later in this episode, it's like kind of. Nice to have a little, like, dumb nonsense with nothing at stake. Yes, yes. I mean, I always hated this story, but revisiting it for the podcast here, I I found myself being, you know, surprisingly warmer to it. I want to give a little shout-out to Wanda Ventham, by the way, who plays... Faroon. What's a Faroon, thank you. Yeah, Yeah. She's been in, like, a million things, Mm -hmm. including Hammer's 1974 Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, which is one of my favorites. Yes! She deserves far, far better than what she's stuck with doing here because she's, like... However she elevates the material. Yes, exactly right. Like, wow, real grief when you're Mm -hmm. looking at the body of the dead girl. I'm like, you're really good. And I look her up. I'm like, oh, yeah, um, you have not only been in a hundred million things that I know and love, you're also Benedict Cumberbatch's mother. (laughs) (laughs) I was not aware of until yesterday. She she is Benedict Cumberbatch's mom. Yes, she is. In real life. She is really Benedict Cumberbatch's mom. Yes. That's awesome. (laughs) We're stunned into silence. I know, know, right? (laughs) And for our fourth round, wonderful a-functionalism, Ariel Leaf will share something of hers today. In 2014, I went to London with my husband, and we did a lot of touristing, and we ran out of touristing things we wanted to do, and we had a number of days still to go. So I decided to uh, spend a day apart from him and jump on the tube and go to Perryvale. Um, for those of you who are old classic Doctor Who fans, you will know that that is Ace's hometown, and it's the setting for the final episode, Survival. Uh, along the way, and while I was there, I took a bunch of random photographs with the idea that I would turn this into some sort of a Doctor Who fan fiction. I didn't know what it was going to be. I just, every time I went to a location that I recognized, I would take pictures of myself and randomly of the surroundings and figure out later how I was going to meld that all into a story. And I had the thought that perhaps it would read uh, just fine as a short story of its own. So you are all going to be my test subjects for such. And you can find the photographs at a link from our website at getoffmyworldpodcast.com on this particular episode's page. Solstice Night, 2014. I'm sleeping soundly in my hotel in London when I have a dream. I'm near a train platform. Is that the TARDIS ahead? A voice in my mind whispers, Smell the blood on the wind. Hear the blood in your ears. Run, run beyond the horizon and catch your hunger. I wake. It's been years since I could remember a dream, but it's still vivid in my mind. I smile, glad to have an England-appropriate dream, if slightly creepy, while here. Perhaps it's the TARDIS down the block by my tube station that caused it. I fall back asleep. I dream again. This time it's a tube station, but why Notting Hill Gate? We aren't near the central line at all. Westbound platform? I I feel as though I'm compelled to get on the train. I wake just as I step on board. When I open my eyes, my heart is pounding. Nothing gets me back to sleep. I get up and dress, leaving quietly so as not to wake my husband. Riding the district line to connect with the central line at Notting Hill, I want to laugh at myself for this, but my pulse is still racing. Hopefully I'll be able to make fun of myself later. I'm here. I look at the westbound options. At first, nothing grabs me, but then... 
Perryvale? Isn't that Ace's hometown where the final episode of the old series was shot? But that's... No, no, I mean, I must have seen Perryville was on the line on a map somewhere, and Ace is my favorite companion. I'm sure that influenced my dream. I mean, I'm not going to Perryville, not on a whim and wasting a whole day of vacation. That's idiotic. I get on the train. By the time I arrive, I feel ridiculous, absurd, already smacking myself in the head for wasting my day like this. I start to head down the stairs, but then I turn back and... What? Is that the TARDIS? The station looks just like it did in my dreams. I look again, and it's gone. No, no, silly, it was never there. I should go back. My husband's probably wondering where I went, but I head out of the station instead. As I exit, I see a park across the street. It looks familiar. Having no set course, I enter it. As I walk in, I think I catch a glimpse of the TARDIS again, but as I get closer, I see only a playground. I walk towards the swing, dejected yet uneasy. I sit. I swing a few times, listening, looking around. For a moment, I think I hear hoofbeats. No, now there's nothing. I doubt barely anyone still rides a horse these days, much less in some London suburb. After a while, I get mad at myself. You had to pick a Sunday, didn't you? You bring me to the boredom capital of the universe, and you pick the one day you can't even get a decent television program. This is stupid. There's not even a single person in sight. Then I hear a new noise, a familiar gasping, wheezing sound. The wind begins to stir. Where is it coming from? From the left, the right, behind me? I turn in every direction as the sound and wind fade. I spy nothing but a lone crow strutting across the grass like he owns the joint. I cross the field. Something just isn't right. Also, I'm not supposed to be in the playground if I'm over 14 and I don't have a kid. I have no wish to explain needing to get bailed out here, of all places. The thought makes me chuckle, but... Then I gasp. I hear a low snarl from a hole in the bushes. A whisper, Are you hungry, sister? Come hunting. My heart begins to beat again, but it's not fear, it's excitement. I feel as though if I went in that hole, I might not return. Or return the same person. I force myself to back away and turn around. I decide to leave the park. I I tell myself I'm not scared, but I am. I recognize the street name, Medway Drive. It should lead to a series of little shops that are closed on Sunday. Damn. All that's open is a little grocery store. Well, I could at least grab a soda or something. I'm thirsty, it's gotten quite hot out, and the combination of fear, thrill, and heat has made me sweaty. As I'm nosing around, I hear the shop owner complain to his friend. Think I want to give up me one day of rest and come in here to sit behind the register? It's the law of the jungle, though, isn't it? Then he starts telling a familiar joke to his friend. Are these two guys in a tent in the jungle? It's dark, right, and they hear this terrible noise outside the tent. One guy turns to the other and says, Hear that? That's a lion. The other guy doesn't say a word. He just starts putting on his running shoes. I grab a Fanta and head towards the counter as he continues. First guy says, What are you doing? You can't run a lion. And I reach the counter, and without even noticing, I'm opening my mouth and I beat him to it. The second guy says I don't have to outrun the lion. My voice is shaky and I put the can on the counter. The shopkeeper stares at me. That's right, miss. He just has to outrun his friends. Then the lion eats his friend and not him. Pause. That'll be one pound ten, please. I pay him. I smile as I'm about to leave and I say, Tough world out there. I think you better get your running shoes on, gentlemen. I pass by the pub, but no one is there. I can hear the noise from the fruit machine echoing inside the empty room. In fact, no one seems to be anywhere. 
Everything feels uh, abandoned, like, like this suitcase just sitting on the sidewalk, even the church. On a Sunday, where was the sound of the organ, the kid in the yard? Nothing but litter and overgrown hedges all along the street. Over a rotting fence, I spot the TARDIS near the library. I run towards it. As I near, I glance at the library, closed. When I look back again, it's gone, damn it. I begin to walk down Ashwood Avenue. It's more tidy here, but just as dead. I see the first sign of light. A cat, I whisper, psst, psst, but it hisses at me in a way that causes me to back away. Every other house is for sale, it seems. Darkened windows, empty offices. I think I hear voices as I pass a housing complex. Where's your mom? The bad cat man made her go away. I see another cat. It starts to move towards me. I turn quickly away from where I spotted on the Bleasdale Avenue. Up ahead is the crossroad. I, th- I, th- I think that I'm making this up. I think I need to breathe. I pretend not to feel feline eyes watching me. My meandering has led me to the Horsendale Hills. Without thought, I plunge into the trees and onto the rising path. It's a long way up. I, I should turn back, but I'm pulled forward. I climb up. My legs should get tired. Why aren't they? I hear someone say, I feel like I could run for miles. That someone is me. This is good. I like feeling like this. Whatever was pulling me stops when I get to the top. The trail ends here. There's a rustle in the grass. Cat again. Its jaws open wide and it begins to stalk me. I hear in my head, do you bleed? I can always do something to you if you bleed. I begin to run across the hill. A tree ahead looks familiar, and I can smell engine grease, motor oil, someone shouting, If we fight like animals, we die like animals. The trail begins to thin out, but I swear I can hear the whinny of a horse in the breeze, a low purr of delight. But in fact, the closer I get to the trees, the safer I begin to feel. As I reach the tree, I stop still. I recognize the gap ahead. I've seen this gap before. At the very end of the very last episode, automatically I begin to play the scene in my mind. There are worlds out there where the sky is burning, where the sea's asleep and the river's dreaming, people made of smoke and cities made of song. Somewhere there's danger, somewhere there's injustice, somewhere else the tea is getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. As I smile through the happy tears of a child's memory, the child that never wanted it to end, It's as if all my fears fade and the sense of menace is gone. I feel secure, as if my journey is complete. All I'm hearing are the ghosts bouncing off the walls of time. I look back down the hill and I see some other areas in town are stirring that I didn't walk through. This place is more alive than I thought. Once I stopped being afraid, I saw what was really there alongside the past. I turn around, no longer looking for cats, horses, or worse. I whisper... Good hunting, sister. And I head back to the train station. Thanks, Ariel. And for our fifth and final round, we're going to do the the In this particular sequence, we talk about big finish box sets. In this case, we're going to discuss for the first time the first two episodes of The War Master, starring Derek Jacobi as The War Master. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about episode one, Beneath the Viscoid, and episode two, The Good Master. 
written by Nicholas Briggs and Janine Jones, respectively. Beneath the Viscoid. It's just a gross title. It sounds like some sort of Achilles heel. (laughs) Just hit him beneath the Viscoid. (laughs) You'll be down for the count. Like like (laughs) the slimy stuff on You Can't Do That on Television. Like immediately, (laughs) it was not water to me, but like this thick, oozy, gooey. For the benefit of the people who haven't heard this yet, which I'm going to guess is most of our audience, we're going to spoil it. So if you want to go buy it, go do it now. Now's the time. Pause this. And we're going to come do right it. back. Yep. Clear a day. You're back. <laughs> Listen to the entire podcast. Are you back? <laughs> Are you guys back now? Is there anything we review that we don't spoil? <laughs> no. Yes. I mean, we ruin everything. That's yeah. true. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we, we surgically remove it, your joy and stomp on it on the ground. <laughs> people have joy? <laughs> We're referring to people, not Pat. Yeah, 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 I know. It's like I'm watching Marie Kondo, and she's like, spark joy, you keep things as I'm like, what's that? <laughs> what a high bar. Anyway. Okay, um, we're going to spoil things. Moving on. But uh, we might as well give a brief overview of the plot. I have the blurb right here on the ocean planet Gardeza. And something deep beneath the Viscoid, which is this weird slimy ocean. A mysterious capsule is recovered from the Time War and an equally mysterious stranger found within. The doctor's reputation precedes him even here. But can he be trusted? No. Because he's not the doctor. He's He's the master. Yeah, I thought it was, you know, interesting to see the master pretending to be the doctor and playing the doctor in a exceptionally doddering... In a very Santa Clausy mm-hmm. kind of way. You know, <laughs> and, ineffectual and, kind of way. And at times really half-hearted, where he's just getting tired listening oh, to my sob dear. stories. And Don't he's like, you know how much I care about <laughs> all species? <laughs> yeah, Derek Jacoby is one of my favorite actors I've watched in my entire life. I, I'm not totally sure I love what he's doing in this episode. Really? He, I love it. I just don't know that he's taking it seriously enough. He's so unctuous and ingenuous. Like, no one would possibly trust this guy. It's just <laughs> so... I think it's because we love the Doctor. I mean, the, most people should immediately keep the Doctor in a cage and never trust him. Mm-hmm. Like, we as an <laughs> yeah. audience know that they should. Yeah. And I think he acts more bizarre than Derek Jacoby, frankly. And I, I think also, there's part of me that, like, if I, if I think about how the Master thinks about how stupid people are. He's like, I don't even need to put the effort in. Watch me not even put the effort in. Oh, yeah, the dumb humans are still going to do exactly like I asked them to. Like, that's what I sort of hear in his voice a lot well, of the time. It's like he figured out the narrative key of Doctor Who stories, right? Act like the Doctor and people are just going to trust you mm-hmm. and allow you to do whatever. And I think it also works on another level because he's comically barely hiding his persona to me, it sort of makes the listeners sort of lulled into a false sense of security. This is a fun performance, and they're laughing, so that when he is brutal at the end, you have forgotten that he is the master. Yeah, my note is, the master's murder of Oshin at the end of the story is very cruel and unpleasant, but it's probably dramatically necessary, since otherwise he didn't act too differently than the doctor mm-hmm. might have throughout the entire story. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly deliberate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to ease you into this new paradigm of looking at the master in Doctor Who stories, whether that's entirely successful over the course of the box set, we'll talk about. I didn't have any particular issues with this story other than, again, this is by design, you know, the master just not being all that mastery. Just like, you know, it's expedient to be nice right Right now. It's it's expedient to actually help these people. Yes, that, the 
the cheat codes of yeah. this society are to pretend you're helping. I mean, this story is essentially Derek Jacobi's performance. And yeah. if you're like Pat and you find it arch. Too, too arch, then you're not going to enjoy it. I mean, other actors have played the master as arch. This is Derek Jacobi playing the master playing arch. I like the master like is he's, enjoying, he's like I am putting on a show yeah. and I am yeah. loving it. It's not who I am. Because I think the rest of the box set shows that too. Mm-hmm. That is one side of many sides we see in his performance. To me. I feel like he's elbowing me and giving me a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, like, hi, you know I'm the master, I know I'm the master, watch me trick these stupid people. Like, it all and feels I'm, very... And I'm going to make you think it's all fun and, and yeah, laughs yeah. until I murder them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, turns out I was pulling one over on you, too. Well, maybe we can expand the conversation by bringing in episode two, yes. which is a basically identical to episode one. <laughs> yeah. The Good Master. This is the the same story that we just talked about. But Perhaps on, uh, why I have forgotten yes. it existed. But on a different planet, and there's a temporal anomaly uh, that is a big glowing ball of something. Yeah. Yes. That he needs to somehow harness. Yes. And it, and it sort of puts the planet in a state of temporal grace. Exactly. Temporal grace. Yeah, it's, it's a hospital planet. So the Daleks can't attack it. <laughs> Until they figure out a way to launch themselves as just ballistic missiles <laughs> against <laughs> the thing, which I thought was wonderfully inventive on the Daleks' part. We'll just throw ourselves on it. That's very Dalek-y. It really is. <laughs> it's it's the what you call the Soviet approach. I mean, you, never, you never think of the Daleks as being tacticians, exactly. Not yeah, really, just, no. We're just going to pour out and blast things. They just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think maybe I'm going to be in the minority here because I think these episodes are chosen as a progression where we were horrified at the end of that uh, previous episode with him murdering for no real good reason uh, this character we've come to like. And here he is undercover. Presumably this is what the Time Lord sent him to do. Well, I couldn't quite follow the story in that regard, too, because there's a jump of some nature between the end of episode one and the beginning of episode two. Is he on a mission from the Time Lord? Is he just doing his own thing? I I got the vibe that he had been revived from an executed state by the Time Lords because, like, oh my god, it's the Time War, we need everything. That had been established in the television series at some point, too. Yes. But at the end of episode one, he went back to Gallifrey, or at least claimed he was going back to Gallifrey. Well, anyway. I, the only thing I caught was that, like, he's been coming here over and over again. Yeah, and I, I wasn't quite sure how to make energy. sense of that either. Was it, or is he resetting time every time he does that? I thought that maybe and, something in the, the energy that he's trying to harness would, was resetting it. But I think... It's not well enough explained, and we just created our own backstories. Yeah, I mean, even after 40 years of watching Doctor Who, I, I thought this was a little scrambled as far as the clarity of the plot. It was, it was not... And, and I wasn't going to listen to it a second time to try to figure <laughs> it out. I mean, that's a little too harsh. You know, I enjoyed no. it. I enjoyed his performance more, mm-hmm. I think. Maybe it was just a matter of getting used to it. I thought it was better in this one. Um there was an interesting effect where they had these quick blips of, I, I guess they were telepathic thought or something. I, I wasn't completely sure what to make of it, but the master can hear the contrary thoughts of whoever he's talking to. Like, I don't trust him. Okay, I trust you. I'm going to go with you, master. I thought maybe there was supposed to be like temporal shadows. Yeah. Because like, uh, they talked before about him coming back yeah. in, in time and or 
coming back here repeatedly, I thought maybe it was supposed to be like sort of a branching effect of, well, if they had said this, then this reality would have happened, but instead we went this way. You're probably closer to right than, than, <laughs> or to, it was an echo than of me. the past time. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't recur in any of the other stories with yeah. the master. So uh, it was a neat effect. I just wasn't quite sure what to make of it. My favorite scene in here is when the master goes out in the suit to sort of watch the destruction in the sky. Mm-hmm. And we find out that for humans, they've been driven almost mad by seeing this sort of mass level of destruction. But I love Derek Jacoby's performance. It just makes him ever so slightly wistful seeing the mass destruction as opposed to humans. I feel like he could be drinking like a vintage scotch watching yeah, it. Like, uh, seems like a waste of perfectly good people I could oppress. <laughs> I think my favorite thing in this is the like Doctor Who but not like Doctor Who thing of him getting Cole as a companion where Cole just kind of is mm-hmm. like I'm going to be your companion and, I don't and even that know rolls why. into the next it episode rolls into the next and this episode. is what I'm thinking about the box set is that there are these progressions of seeing the master as a protagonist and in these familiar states of Doctor Ness well I was going to say this is what I like is that it makes more gray between the black and the white. Mm-hmm. You know, they both have fascinations with people, whether it's to manipulate them or to to work alongside them. They both are drawn to having that sort of innocent perspective or that eye that doesn't quite know why the universe works the way it does along with them. Like, I like seeing those parallel by each other. Uh, yeah, and I think there's this element here where the alien entity wants to say that the master has some good in him. And I think by us listening to these two stories, I feel like the listener wants to make him a protagonist. And that that alien voice almost comes in and makes an argument that I think you as the listener in your head is making. Like, I can see him as a a good guy. And I love how easily the master just knocks that away. He's like, of course I'm good at saving people's lives. If it, you know, if it's going to help me, me. then I can be a great guy. You're absolutely right. Um, Observing the doctor closely for centuries. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the fun of this box set is every time you think maybe you can get to like this version of the master or maybe they're going to soften them, they go, no. And I feel like it builds this sort of existential Doctor Who dread as in like we are in a universe devoid of the Doctor and you're alone with the Master and so when he's being nice it starts to become scary I'll have more to say about this in later episodes but yeah it's uh, I agree a lot of with what you're saying and it seems to be like it would be right up my alley oh Derek Jacoby is one of Pat's favorite uh, actors and stuff and the the narrative Weight of watching a protagonist means that you want to kind of like him, but for me, I was I was like, he's terrible, he's evil, kill him on sight, you know, he's a monster. Oh Jesus, don't ever trust him. <laughs> yeah, so it was a very kind of hair-raising, alarming experience yeah. for for me to listen to this box set. I think that's yeah. because there's so much Doctor Who where you feel like it's comfort. I know what's going to happen. I'm well, surprised I, by the witty line, but yeah. I know what's going to happen. I next. felt like I knew what was going to happen throughout all of these episodes mm-hmm. because I know what evil does. Yeah. You know, it's like I can I know what the master is going to wind up being. There's a part of me that sickly enjoys the evil of it. Like, mm-hmm. I've been such a good-hearted person in watching Doctor Who and cheering for all the races that survive and being on the side of what's right and to, like, he, 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 really enjoy watching someone like... I am so far from that these days. I get that in my news feed every day. I know, but like, I think there's something about the master that is particularly appealing because he's for himself. He's not doing it to be part of the, I don't know, 
the Nazis. It's an easy way to say mm-hmm. it. He is just for him. And so I think I give myself permission to enjoy his evil in a way that I don't enjoy evil that echoes what's around me. I enjoy how this steers the master away from the new series, ironically, even though it's leading right up to the new series, Appearance of the Master, of him somehow being damaged or that he was mentally scarred by looking into the vortex, that this is a rational creature who has made these decisions, like you Mm -hmm. said, it's for him. He is not insane. And that makes it extra frightening. We'll have a lot to talk about in episode four. I really only have one thing to say about this particular story. Mm -hmm. When today came around and it's like, oh, we're doing this for the podcast, I realized I could not remember one thing about this story. <laughs> so I kind of... I kind of quote for Big Finish on this one. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I kind of listened to it again, kind of fast-forwarding through it, you know. I think it's the weakest story in the box. And I did that earlier today, and I still can't really remember anything that <laughs> no, happened in I this story. Right number three. It did not engage me at all. Well, you shouldn't have touched the big glowing time paradox ball yeah. and erased your memory of all of the times you listened to this story. <laughs> it's like, they have been sent with the 12th Doctor. I've been doing it for billions yeah. of years. I had no idea. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Get Off My World. We'll be back in two weeks with more classic Doctor Who fun, and we're going to finish up our discussion of the Big Finish audio drama, The War Master. Until that time, I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Calvin. And I'm Ariel. And we're saying... Get Off My World! Episode, we'll be talking about... Okay. Do you need a, Do you need help? No. A hug? No, I'm fine. <laughs> no, I gotta just shake it off. Shake it off. I'm just still thinking of Kelvin. You're like, I don't remember anything. <laughs> I know nothing! Oh, you Sergeant Schultz. Um, <laughs>